What we want to talk about tonight is two ways of knowing. A lot of what I'm going to share with you is contained in a book of that same name in the back as well as a few other books. And maybe I'll just say now that some folks were asking earlier about books that pertain to the first seminar this morning and other things. If anybody ever has questions about, well, which book is about what, please talk to somebody who's back there. Uh, there be, should be somebody most of the time in the back there with our uh, uh, book display that can help you to know uh, which books would talk about the, what you're interested in. So just talk to somebody if you need help with that. Thank you, Jesus. So. <clears throat> We want to talk tonight about, um, well, the fancy word for it is epistemology. That's the hardest thing I'm going to talk about, okay? It's going to get easy from there. That's just a fancy way of talking about how we know what we know. What is our way of knowing, of perceiving, and what should it be if we're going to uh, come into relationship with God, as Brother Rossi mentioned earlier, it seems to have been a theme scripture so far uh, this year, that salvation, eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What does that knowledge look like? And if we could start maybe with a simple question that uh, I think most people would answer in a similar fashion, is knowledge good or is it bad? That's exactly the answer that I had. I think that's the answer that everybody has. Well, it depends. Almost anybody in the world would tell you, well, it depends. Most people would say it depends on what it is that you're knowing. But I want to talk tonight about not only that question, but how it is that we're knowing. How we're coming to what we know. And that this may also have even more to do with whether it's good or whether it's bad. <laughs> Amen. So. The Bible talks a lot about two kinds of knowledge, two kinds of wisdom even. Wisdom is often defined as the capacity to pull pieces together, the capacity to understand meaning by understanding the relationship of the parts with each other. It's the capacity to comprehend the whole of something. It's a frame, if you will. Remember, we talked about frames on Sunday and since then. So it's, it's, your, it's a framework within which pieces find their meaning. And yet the Bible speaks to us about two kinds of wisdom. There is wisdom, James says, from above, and then he speaks about wisdom from below. There are frameworks that come from above and frameworks where things make sense that come from below. James, in the beginning of his book, talks about that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no change. And yet, there is a wisdom from below, he says, that is earthly and sensual and demonic. He connects it to confusion and so forth but there is a wisdom from above. The Bible is always speaking in terms of above or, or below. Jesus said one way to translate John 3 is unless you are born from above, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. 
Jerusalem above is the mother of us all. So there is a, there is a relationship from above and a relationship from below. The source of our knowledge, of our knowing, of our framework is all important. It's been a pivotal question from the beginning, hasn't it? I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the two trees in the garden, because we've already talked about it quite a bit for the last couple of days, but isn't that where it all starts? So we see these two archetypal trees, the very beginning, the very first choice of consequence that is made there is made between these two ways of knowing, we could say, because on the one hand we have the tree of life, which is representing relationship with God. They were walking with God in the ruach of the day, the spirit of the day. They would walk with him in the garden. There was relationship and the tree of life was there. And then there was this tree that God said, don't eat of this tree. Not because he wanted to deprive them, although that was the lie from the devil, but because he knew that if you eat of this tree, you're gonna die. This is the tree of death. So it's not that God is opposed to knowledge, he's just opposed to a certain type of knowledge. And he's warned his children because he loves us, don't partake of that other tree. If you eat of it, you're gonna die. There is a death inherent in the fruit that is gonna come off of that tree. And yes, it looks good. Yes, it's very tempting. What was the temptation there? That you should be wise. What's wrong with being wise? Well, again, it's a question of what kind of wisdom we're talking about. Because it was, you shall be as God, knowing good and evil for yourself. Okay, is it wrong to know good and evil? Should we, shouldn't we make a distinction between good and evil and know the difference between the two? Yes, how are we gonna know that difference? Are we gonna know it because we receive it from above? Or are we gonna take that into our own hands and say, I think I can navigate this. I think we can figure this out and take a standard from below. So that's the type of knowledge that Satan was offering and when she saw that it was pleasing to the eye and that it was desirable to make one wise, she partook of the fruit and ate it. Amen. So this is connected to that whole thing. Brother Kevin spoke about it. Remember the graph that he had up or the chart, whatever it was that he had up here with all those descriptive words on the two sides and on the one side was death and fragmentation and confusion and disintegration. On the other side is life and relationship and wholeness and so forth. So that's the frames we've already been talking about. Life has always got a connectedness to it. Death tends towards a fragmentation and a detachment. So I wanna read you uh, a couple of scriptures and we're gonna talk about cultural distinctions between the Greeks and the Hebrews. The Hebrew culture was distinct from the Greek culture in that it was based in this relationship, wasn't it? That their God was a God who was always seeking to be known, to reveal himself to his people. Whereas the Greeks were always seeking to conform gods, their gods to their own images. And that, uh, but Brother Evan talked a little bit about this the other day and it, it, I'm not, th there might be a little clarification needed on that. He mentioned about the Greeks not naming their gods. That, that wasn't really true in the beginning. The Greeks had gods that had names, but what happened was Greek mythology 
where they had all these gods that they worshipped that were really just icons of what they wanted to be, then morphed into Greek philosophy where they begin to abstract it and you know that primitive stuff where you believe in myths and gods and everything, now we have become sophisticated and we have philosophy which really just meant that their own minds had become God. That was an even better option than creating gods and naming them that were like you. You could just be God, get rid of the gods and say there wasn't a God except yourself. So that's an oversimplification probably. But in essence, they came to then respect God as this abstraction, as this unknowable, unnameable, whatever force that you kind of could deduce from the world around you. Um, that had to be reckoned with, but really it was just whatever we uh, construed it to be in our own minds. That was kind of the foundation in, shall we say, layman's terms. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of that here, but the Hebrews, on the other hand, were always about revelation. That their God, the point was not to try to figure God out, but to seek Him in hopes that perhaps He would reveal Himself to them, to come to Him with humility and honest prayer and seeking, recognizing that he was God and not us. And that, that they knew that that was the only way to actually access the presence of God. So let me read you this passage from Colossians. We've, it's already been quoted uh, this week, I believe. Colossians 2, for I want you to know, this is Paul writing to the church in Coloss, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. The context of this actually is coming right after the scripture we opened the symposium with about God having translated us or removed us or rescued us from the dominion of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Okay, so this is the context he's saying, that he's thanking God that they've been rescued and then he says he, he's got this conflict for them. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's encouraging them towards understanding, towards wisdom, towards knowledge. And he says all of it is in Christ. As we heard earlier today, this is a spatial thing. Amen. It doesn't just mean that Jesus has all the facts and so you can ask him. It means that we come to understanding of the, the knowledge that saves us. We come to it in a context. We come to it in Christ. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. As you have received him, walk in him. If we could reference some serpentine uh, interpreters again, uh, there are people who try to make that say that, well, since you received him, you might as well walk in him. That's not really the way it reads to me. It seems like he's saying instead, you remember how you received him? Remember how you were translated and delivered from that dominion of darkness into the kingdom? Do you remember what it took and how you came into that presence of God? Walk like that. 
Spend your life. Let that be the precedent for how you live in the life. As you received him, so walk in him. Amen. And beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and you are complete in him. One of the early church leaders, Tertullian, is the one whom my subtitle is taken from. He's commenting on this scripture, this passage in Colossians 2. We don't endorse everything Tertullian stood for or said, but he did have some insights and he had, some, he had pretty good clarity on the separation of these two kingdoms. And he says, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart. He still saw pretty clearly and whenever that was, when was he, 170 or something like that? Sir, 200s, early 200s, <clears throat> amen. So he's drawing a distinction between the Greek way of thinking and the Jewish way of thinking. The prophets had drawn that distinction long before, recognizing the conflict. Zechariah 9.13, I will bend Judah as I, this is the Lord speaking, I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. There is a conflict of vision going on here. So let's talk about the Hebrew view for just a moment. We've already spoken about some of this and I'll, I'll skip over some of it. We've been talking about, you know what you worship. Salvation is the Jews because they know what they worship. To know him is eternal life. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He did not say, you shall know about the truth. And the facts that you learn are gonna set you free. He said, you're gonna have a relationship with the truth. You're going to know the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. So if we're knowing him, we're knowing the truth. <clears throat> the whole approach to truth in the Hebraic view, as I said, has to do with revelation. There is a difference between deduction and revelation. Deduction is conclusions that we come to based on the information that we're gathering, right? Revelation is something that we did not see before that has now been shown to us by something outside of ourselves. It's not something that we came to knowing good and evil for ourselves. It's something that came to us. Amen. So, the very word for truth in Greek, aletheia, indicates this. It means unhiddenness, indicating that before the truth is known, what is not known is a mystery. You don't know what you don't know. We don't know God before we meet him, do we? There's a difference between 
learning about God and being told about him and so forth, and meeting him. We can know about the, you name a famous figure, President of the United States. We can know about the President, we can learn facts about him, we can see his picture, this is what he looks like, so on and so forth. But we wouldn't really, we would say, do you know the President? Do you know Donald Trump? I don't think anybody in here would say, oh yeah, yeah, I know him. We would say we know about him. So we've collected information about him, but it's different than actually meeting somebody in a presentational way where you have come into their presence and you have an interactive relationship. There's a big difference between those two. So revelation requires relationship. It requires a source outside of ourselves. And it even indicates a need for submission. We have to, if we're going to understand, instead of overstand, we're going to have to come under. We're going to have to admit there are things we don't know. It's going to require some humility to come to revelation. When the... Uh, when Philip overtook the Ethiopian in his chariot and he was reading Isaiah and he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless I study a little longer? <laughs> oh, I got that one wrong, didn't I? <laughs> how can I unless somebody explains it to me? Amen. Are we not all in that condition? Remember the disciples on the, the road to Emmaus after Jesus had been crucified and they're struggling to understand what's going on and this man shows up and is walking along the road with them and he's telling them, uh, you know, what, 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 what things, you know? And they say, are you the only one who hasn't been around here? And, and they think, man, this guy, he's the only one around here who doesn't know what's going on. He was the only one who did know what was going on, <laughs> amen. But they were wrestling with how do these pieces fit? How does this, what's happened now, fit with what happened before? And how can we understand what this is possibly supposed to mean? We, we thought, they said, he was going to be the one to deliver Israel. And we thought, and we thought, and, and yet but this, and but that. And what does he say to them? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets have said. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he opened the scriptures to them. And they're walking along with him, and you know the story, but he was going to go on and they constrain him. Why did they do that? Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us along the road and opened the scriptures to us? This wasn't just an information session. This wasn't just, oh no, let me tell you about some of the prophecies in the Bible. Something was being communicated there that was not just persuasive words. Amen? It wasn't a philosophy. Well, let me tell you another way of looking at it. That wasn't what was going on. They were in the presence of him, even though their eyes were not yet opened. When they, when they felt that, and they invited him in when he was going to go along without them, it's scary, isn't it, to think that Jesus would be so interested in us that he would make a personal appearance that he would show up and begin to speak to us through a man, we didn't recognize that it was him, and that, and that then he would just continue on, waiting to see if we had the capacity to recognize that thing that said, this is not just persuasive words. 
something else is going on here. And that it was dependent upon us to say, wait a minute, no, we are going to constrain you. Please come into my house. Come closer into my life. I know what I'm feeling here. And this is giving me hope. <laughs> Amen. And we, they invited him in and then their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Jesus. And they realized, oh, that was Jesus. No wonder we recognize that feeling. It's the same thing we used to feel when he walked with us before. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So there is a resonance to truth. If we're going to learn to recognize the truth, then what we're listening for is not just information that we can go Google and verify. Amen. The source of that information is all important. And how it impacts us in the wholeness of our being is also important. We're told that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our minds and our strength. So there is a wholeness of connection and relationship with God. And when we're seeking for truth, we have to ask, is this coming to me in wholeness? Does it resonate with the entirety of what God is and has done in my life? Brother Blair has shared before that there's a, we have a, he has a, a book back there called Truth as Song. Speaking about a, a human being's innate hardwired capacity to recognize music and to know if a note fits in the song or not. People can do that have no musical training, no experience, even babies, infants can recognize if a note is out of tune or not. You play a chord and you play a bad note in it, your baby will not appreciate that. Even babies can tell the difference. Why? Is it because somebody explained to them and said, now there's, there's a relevance of frequencies in music and it's a mathematical equation, which is true. There are mathematical equations in music and you can go through all of that and it might be interesting, but nobody needs that to know, that was a bad note. <laughs> Amen. God has built something into us that has the capacity to recognize whether something resonates with the context or not. And truth is the same way. When something doesn't fit with the wholeness, the body of truth, then we say, well, there's, there's one of two problems going on here. Either this is not the truth or there's something wrong with me and my perception, my ability to incorporate this. Maybe some of the things that I thought were the context that I thought were the other parts of the song are not supposed to be in that song. Maybe that's why this puzzle piece doesn't seem to fit. The other pieces aren't in the right spot. But we have a capacity. God has given us a capacity to recognize when the picture starts becoming whole, when it starts becoming complete. Amen. Of course, that's dependent upon our heart, dependent upon the condition of our heart and the motives of our heart. Otherwise, the God of this world will blind our eyes. We'll see, but we won't perceive We'll hear, but we won't understand. Amen. What is, is Jesus quoted Isaiah saying that? These people, they see with their eyes, but they don't perceive. They hear with their ears, but they don't understand because their hearts 
have grown callous. So even our powers of perception are governed by the condition of our hearts. It's not a matter of becoming smart enough to know the truth in Jesus. It's a matter of having your heart in the right position. <clears throat> Let's talk about the bad news a little bit. The Greek perspective, on the other hand, of knowledge. For the Greeks, the ideal was the Olympian spectator. That's how they originally viewed their gods, is that the gods were above everything. They were above it all. <laughs> and they surveyed the world from the Olympian heights. The Olympian games, you know, they were watching the play that's going on and they're surveying it. And because they're above it all, they can see and understand what's going on. So for the Greeks, the way that you're going to understand is to try to get above it all, <laughs> okay? To separate yourself from what is going on down here, detach yourself and become an observer. Because then we can be objective. Let's be objective about this. Isn't that the path to truth? We need objectivity so that we can accurately discern the truth without being swayed and influenced by our biases and by our dangerous feelings and emotions and all those things that take people off track. If we could just separate ourselves from what it is that we're seeking to understand and have no feelings about it, those feelings are dangerous. Are they not? I'm going to just ask that question right here. I'm not supposed to ask you yet, but forget the paper for a second. Are feelings dangerous? Are emotions potentially destructive? Are they always destructive? Okay. So <clears throat> what do we do about the fact that you can be taken captive by your emotions and things can get out of hand? And I mean, isn't it true that your emotions can cloud your judgment? Isn't that true? Okay, so then is it true what the Greeks said that the, the path to really being able to truly understand is to be able to separate ourselves from it so that we don't feel all those vested interests that would cloud our judgment? Is that the path to the kind of knowledge that brings life? Why not? Well, Liad points out that it's impossible. That's a footnote. Even if you did, I was, that was going to be next. <laughs> Even if you did think <laughs> that that was the path to, to true knowledge, there's a little problem. <laughs> it's impossible for human beings. The only one who can see everything equidistantly and know all things at all times is God. So that's no problem if you're planning to be God. Then you can assume that role. But since there's some problems with that, which we're going to talk about, that becomes... Uh, that, that's going to be difficult. Okay, so this emotional thing, then we acknowledge that it's a problem, and yet we're also acknowledging that trying to detach ourselves from emotions is not the solution to that problem that we have of this subjective approach to anything, knowing anything, not to mention God. Okay, so we have a, we have a problem being human beings that is not going to be overcome by this objectivity because uh, there is something called the rational mind uh, 
that is just as capable of getting us off track as our subjective emotions. Let me tell you a little bit more about the Greeks and then we'll get into what I just said a little more. Okay, so for the Greeks, they were very interested in developing theories about things. In one level, they would acknowledge, well, you can't know everything there is to know, so we just come up with theories, we amass the facts that we have, and we come up with what seems like the best hypothesis, and, and that's the best you can do. And then you revise those as new information comes along. It's also known as the scientific method. Theory shares the same root as theater. Because it comes from the idea that you can detach yourself and just watch, become a spectator and observe. A spectator is obviously connected to spectacles. You're observing a spectacle or you wear spectacles. Spectacles are your glasses that you see the world through. And the problem with this idea of objectivity is that <laughs> you can't look at your spectacles and say, oh, they're a little dirty, and look through them at the same time. We say, well, that's just the way you're looking at it. You're looking at it through rose-colored glasses or whatever. That's why the world appears that way to you. And we say, I am? Well, let me see. But when you're doing this, you're not looking at the world anymore. Do you see? You can't look at your glasses and through them at the same time. So anytime that we say, oh no, I don't have a, I don't have, I'm not seeing this through any frame. I had a, a journalist tell me that one time. He was doing us the courtesy of writing a news story about our community. And uh, it wasn't going to be good. We could tell from the beginning. He was deeply offended that I seemed to think that I already knew how this story was going to go before he had even written it. He didn't think that was quite fair. Well, I was right. The story went exactly how I knew it was going to go. But anyway, I asked him, I said, well, what, what angle are you coming at this story from? What's your frame here? He said, oh, as a reporter, I don't have an angle. This is one of the cardinal rules of reporting, objectivity. You, you can't write stories with a bias. That wouldn't be fair to the people who read your articles. Right? I mean, that's, if that weren't the case, then we wouldn't be able to trust the media. <laughs> so for him to do... <laughs> For him to do his job and us to be able to trust him, he's got to be objective and not have an angle. So, well, that's very noble of, of him to want to do that. But that, that is, that, that's a quote. That's a direct quote. He said, I, I'm not coming at this at any angle at all. Is it really not a religious angle? Because I'm not religious. And he told me that. <laughs> It's impossible. It's impossible to be objective. Try as we might, we're just changing one pair of glasses for the other one. Or we take them off and are as blind as we are without them. Amen. We're stuck. We, we can only see. We can't see all sides of anything all at once. I can't see this side of this thing and this side at the same time. I can say, oh, no, I can do that. I can come over here. 
But as soon as I come over here, or under here, I can't see up here anymore. So we can look around, and we can try to look at it from this side and look at it from that side, but you can't do it all at once. You can't see every side of something all at once. Not as a human being, you can't. But if you could just be as God, you could. Amen. Okay, so for the Greeks, detachment and objectivity is the path to wisdom. The Bible tells us, of course, Paul says, now we know in part, we see in part. Only then are we going to be known just as we are fully known. Only then are we going to have full knowledge when we are completely one and joined with him. Do you remember the, uh, you may have, y'all have probably heard before, the, the ancient riddle of the blind men and the elephant? I think it's a poem, actually. I should have brought it. I could have read it. It's funny. But basically, there's, how many is it? Six or seven, six blind men. And they've always been blind, so they've never seen an elephant. But this, I think it's an Indian parable. And so they're, they're finding this elephant, and one of them is feeling around, and he finds the trunk. And he says, whew, elephants are very much like snakes. And another one says, you don't know what you're talking about. He's got a hold of the leg. He's saying, elephants are like trees. And another one says, you guys are both wrong. He's feeling the side of the elephant. He says, an elephant is like a wall. And another one has the tail and the tassels of the tail. And he says, no, an elephant is like a rope. They're all seeing in, in part because they're blind, because they're partial. Okay. So let's return to the question of what we can trust. If we are concerned that our emotions can cloud the picture and can even be destructive, there's plenty of destructive emotions. Rage, jealousy, lust, right? There's all kinds of feelings that take hold of people and we'll even say, I didn't even mean to do that. I just got so mad. So there are, there's Plato called lust a, a mad and savage master. There are things that can control us and take hold of us that are emotions and feelings. And sometimes we try to conquer those things by saying, I just got to get a hold of myself. What does that typically mean in Western culture? What does get a hold of yourself mean? It means bottle up your emotions and rely upon your mind to reason your way through this so that you don't do something you regret. It's an attempt to use the mind to control yourself. The mind is always the tool that the fallen human nature turns towards. Whether we're trying to understand something, whether we're trying to change somebody else, change the world, change ourselves, where do we go? Straight back to the tree of knowledge straight back to what we can know for ourselves, straight back to how we see the world and what we think and what we, we perceive should be done and how we put things together. That's the human tendency because it's all we have. Unless God is real and we could come into relationship with him. So let's define what reasoning is. If we ask the same question I asked about knowledge, is reason good or is it bad? We'd have to say it depends again, wouldn't we? 
Okay, reason is not, uh, my point is not that reason is intrinsically evil and that nobody should ever be reasonable. Okay, this talk wouldn't be going very well <laughs> if I wasn't able to be reasonable about some of the things that I'm saying here and if you weren't capable of reasoning your way through the things that we're talking about. So God has given us the capacity to reason. But reason simply defined is simply taking premises and then moving on to inferences and then drawing conclusions. So reason is as good or as bad as your starting point. Let me ask you a provocative question. Was the Holocaust reasonable? To some, Brother Jared says. We could pull out our it depends answer again, couldn't we? Was it reasonable? Or was it irrational what the Germans did there? It was certainly arrived at through much reasoning and rationality. It was. Let me read you a few quotes here from some people who have spent decades studying the phenomenon of the Holocaust. This is Professor Zygmunt Bauman. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. After decades of study, he showed that the Nazi program was, this, quote, not an irrational outflow of the not yet fully eradicated residues of pre-modern barbarity, of dark passions gone wild. Rather, says Bauman, it arose out of a genuinely rational concern. Germany was the most educated, intellectual, philosophical, cultured nation on the face of the earth in the 1930s. They had more schools, more books were coming out of Germany. They were the fountainhead of science, of medicine. All of it was coming out of Germany at that time. The tree of knowledge was just proliferating in that culture. This is professors named Crin and Rappaport did a separate study and came to the same conclusion after in-depth research that, quote, far from being irrational, the Holocaust can only be epitomized in terms of excessive rationality, an example of logical thought slipping the bonds of human feeling. It wasn't their brains that got that were removed from the picture that allowed them to do what they did. It was their hearts that got removed. People that weren't able to feel anymore and just became calculating machines and started figuring out, well, what are we gonna do with the Jewish problem? How, this isn't, they, they dealt, it was a lot of the early things that they brought into play had to do with economics. And it made good economic sense to thin out a lot of the population, especially certain segments of agrarian peoples who didn't contribute to the consumer society and so forth. Poland and other places. A man held by a consensus to be the outstanding modern European psychiatrist of the last half of the 20th century, Henry Baruch, warned in summing up his own research into the Holocaust that, quote, a pure and disembodied intelligence constitutes the greatest danger and gives birth to the most redoubtable monsters. 
intelligence and reasoning and rationalizing is only as good as your premise. It's only as good as the starting point. And the starting point for the Germans was a little off base, shall we say. But what they did made perfect sense according to the goals that they had. According to their understanding of the world, you could rationalize what they did. Amen. So now we've really got a dilemma because we already said that our emotions are very dangerous, can take us out of control and be destructive. And now we're saying that history has well proven that our reasoning powers, if they get unharnessed and based on the wrong things, are just as destructive or if not more so. Thank you, Jesus. And yet reason is where everybody almost always turns. It's natural. I would contend that the mind is the, is the command center of the carnal nature. It's the head of the body of the flesh. So that's where we turn. Am I saying that we should not be reasonable? No, we've already covered that. The Lord himself said in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. But on a little different basis, right? Though your sins were as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Paul said, in view of God's mercy, you take that as a starting point. Offer yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, for this is your reasonable act of service or worship. It's very reasonable in view of God's mercy. So it's the starting point. If we believe in reason and we trust in reason as if it's a, a thing of its own, as if it is a God of its own, we place our faith in reason. If people could just be reasonable, they'd work out the problems of the world. Reason is the only reasonable course. That's called a tautology. To say, I believe in reason because it's the only reasonable thing to do is begging the question. It's unreasonable, actually, right? It's, it's just as unreasonable as, it's just as much of a circular reasoning as saying, I believe in God because God said to. That doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove that God exists. It's based on something prior to that, isn't it? Okay, so what's generally considered to be the highest form of reasoning is what's called analytic reasoning. I'm saying in the world. We wouldn't say it's the highest form, <laughs> depending on how you measure that scale. But in the world, it would be assumed by the Greeks and, uh, and those who think like them that the highest form of reasoning is analytic reasoning. The word analysis in the Greek means to dissolve. It means to pull apart or it means to loosen, take the pieces apart, to fragment. So when we're analyzing, we're standing above instead of understanding we're, and we're pulling things apart saying, I've got to figure out how this thing works. And the problem with this analytic approach is that 
When we dissolve the thing we're trying to know, we have changed it from what it used to be. By the time we figure it out, figure it out, we're looking at something different than what we started with. At least that's true if we're trying to understand life. Remember we talked about life must be whole. It must be put together according to a certain design. Amen? And truth is like that. The body of truth is like that. We've talked about that quite a bit in the last couple of days. That you can't be abstracting things, pulling things out of context even in the Word of God. Or you're going to kill the intended life and meaning that is in there. Here's a quote from a Danish physicist named Niles Bohr. He's talking about this problem here and he says, in order to study the life in a life study laboratory, one must either kill an organism and determine its molecular structure, in which case we would know the structure of a dead thing, or we could have a living organism but sacrifice the knowledge of its structure. The experimental act of determining the structure also kills the organism. You see, it's, it's the same thing as saying that I can't see both sides of this thing at the same time. If you're going to try to study, how, how does this thing work, this living system? <laughs> the only way man has of getting in and studying it is, well, let's pull it apart. Let's dissect it. Let's put it on the operating table and, and open it up. But, but we change it, we kill it when we do that. And the same is true of truth, of the Word of God. In John 10, 35, where Jesus says, the scripture cannot be broken. The word broken is lesis in the Greek. It's analysis, same root. The scripture cannot be pulled apart. Well, it can, but it becomes the letter that kills. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. How do we approach the word of God? How do we approach the truth of God? Jesus said in John 6, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. He had said in John 4 that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth has to be alive. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We talked earlier about you search the scriptures because you think you will find life in these, but they testify of me. You won't come to me, Jesus said, that you might have life, indicating again that even the words of scripture only come alive and into the proper frame of the wisdom from above if we're in relationship with the author of those words. And we're hearing from him we have the humility of that Ethiopian eunuch and we can say, I, I can't just figure this out. It needs to be revealed to me by God and whomever he would choose to send to me. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, this scientific method, I'll try to stop talking about this bad news, but this scientific method, this analytic reasoning Reductionism is a fruit of it, it's an expression of it, where everything is always pulled into its, you know, we go all the way down to the lowest common denominator in everything. Everything is always understood in terms of prior causes. Well, how does that work? Well, I don't know, let's take this part out and see how this part works. And well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know, let's, and always 
you reduce it down, this is how science works, you reduce it down to try to understand smaller and smaller pieces in hopes that somehow once we get all that we can, well then we'll understand the whole. Right? That's called a reductionist approach and that gets applied in our culture to all kinds of things including human relationships, human behavior. Is that not the, the approach of modern psychology? Is, well, let's understand why you did that. Your father must have abused you when you were a child. How many times have we, have we heard those types of things? There must be some prior cause to what happened here, but if we'll just examine it and we'll just think about it and if we'll just look at it and we'll just kind of look at the evidence and so forth, we're going to figure out what makes you tick and why you do what you do. But there's a level of, that never answers the most critical questions for a believer. You can answer the questions of how or what to some degree, has its limitations, but to some degree you can answer those questions pursuing knowledge in that way. But you're never going to arrive at why in the sense of meaning or purpose. Brother Blair has used the example of a clock before. Say a, a pre-modern man, whatever that would be, back us up a few millennia before there was a sense of keeping time that we're so accustomed to that we don't think about it. And this, uh, this man, the, one of the ancients comes across this clock. This is pretty hypothetical, I'm aware. He comes across this clock out in the desert. He says, whoa, what in the world is this thing? I want to know what this thing is all about. And so he pulls it apart and he finds the gears inside and, and then, you know, his children say, what is that thing? He said, well, let me tell you, I can tell you exactly how it works. It's got a spring mechanism. It's got a little thing here and when that goes like that and the tension winds up like this, then little gears go around this one turns that one and that one turns this one and this one turns that one and then these things on the front do like this. Isn't that neat? Now we understand it. What's it for? Well, that's irrelevant. What do you mean, what's it for? We know exactly how it works. <laughs> what do you do with the clock? It's a paperweight. I mean, I, I don't know. What I, <laughs> it's not going to be much unless we understand what it's for. What is the meaning? And, and <laughs> if that's true about a clock, how much more is it true for human beings and for our lives? Why are we here? The reductionist method is not going to bring us to those answers. We're not going to come to God and know God as the scriptures say we must through that method, are we? We're not going to reduce God and put him under a microscope. Has anybody ever tried that? <laughs> Should I say? That's what seminary's about. <laughs> I hope that doesn't offend anybody. <laughs> are we trying to know about God? Are we going to study all the stuff that's been written about him? Or is eternal life to have a relationship with God? And we're just not going to get there. No matter how much reading and study and talking and thinking we do. You don't think your way into the presence of God. Thank you, Jesus. One realm where all this is applied is the realm of physics. Physics uh, has been called the 
king of the sciences. As one physicist said, all the rest of science is just stamp collecting. They're humble guys, <laughs> physicists. <laughs> and uh, there was a real fervor going on in the late 1800s and they were on the heels of a lot of scientific discoveries and such. And the scientific world in general felt like they were just about to get there. You know, alchemy was right around the corner or, or the modern version of it. And they were just about to, the theory of everything was about to be in place, you know, where we just about got our hands around the whole thing. And then something happened in the 1920s in the king of sciences, physics, that was uh, a real uh, twist in the road, shall we say. Uh, and it was in the realm of quantum mechanics, quantum physics. And a guy named Werner Heisenberg was the first one to come up in the 1920s with what has since known as the law of indeterminacy. And what he realized was they were getting down to study subatomic particles for the first time. And he was trying to study the behavior of these particles. And he came up with a, a theory that said that it is impossible to know at the same time the direction that a subatomic particle is moving and the velocity or the speed at which it is moving, to know those two things at the same time was impossible. Every time he tried to determine how fast it was going, it would change directions. And every time he tried to determine which way it was going, the speed would change. This is a simplified version of it, but you can read about it. And it was not a popular idea at first because it meant that the good old scientific method of observation and detachment and, and uh, just we're just going to, you know, examine the evidence was only going to get you no, further, no closer than halfway there in terms of what we're really trying to study because you can never know both things at once. And people wrestled with it, struggled with it. Einstein did not like it. He eventually came to reluctantly have to incorporate it on some level. They didn't like it because it messed with their capacity to say, we're going to get this all figured out. And yet it has become the most well-proven theory in all of science is that you cannot determine. And not only can you not determine it, but the whole point is that the observer who is supposed to be detached from the experiment affects the experiment. He affects the results. What he plans to do changes what happens in what he's studying. That may sound a little bizarre, but it's true. It has been confirmed over and over and over and over again. I didn't bring a bunch of stuff to read to you about it, but we've got a lot that you can read about it. And so, this is a real problem for people who say that, you know, the whole scientific method is founded upon the belief that the only reality is physical reality, the natural world. And if it's supernatural or it's, you know, not something you can taste, touch, feel, experience with your natural sentence, senses, then it's not real, even to the point where human consciousness is not really real, 
humans don't really have a sense of a self. It's just a, an illusion that we have a self and that we can think and things like that. And yet they came up to the realization that the thoughts of the scientists who was observing the natural world were affecting what was happening in the natural world at a subatomic level, at a foundational level, the thoughts and the intents <laughs> of the scientists were affecting the physical universe. Not his physical manipulation of it, just what he was thinking or expecting or looking for changed what happened in the experiments. Amen. So even physics <laughs> ends up bringing us back to the same conclusion that Objectivity is, is impossible. We're participants in this world whether we like it or not. It's an illusion that somehow we can stay separate from it. Thank you, Jesus. Have I lost anybody on some of this? If anybody wants to ask a question or, I've, or, or state it more clearly than I have here, you can. I know some of this is a little technical. Okay, we're going to leave the technical stuff behind now. Thank you, Jesus. Back to the refreshing Hebrew view. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. Not think first about it. Seek it. Seek first the kingdom of God. And he said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God does not come by observation. It's not how it comes. What is the kingdom of God exactly? Well, if we take Paul's definition in Romans, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's real, but it's a spiritual dimension that we're trying to come into. How do we come into the kingdom? How do we find it? Well, it's not going to be by observation. That's not how we're going to get there. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, now concerning things offered to idols, and immediately the modern mind says, well, I guess this doesn't concern me. I don't believe in idols. That's stuff that happened a long time ago or in uh, antique, obscure cultures, and it doesn't relate to me. Idol shares the same root of the word ideal or ideology. Okay? Concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We're talking about idols here. And immediately he acts like we're talking about knowledge. Did he forget his line of thought? What happened here? Concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he, as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him, by God. So he doesn't contrast in his terminology here, knowledge that's good and, and knowledge about other facts that's bad. He contrasts knowledge with love. And did you notice that who was doing the knowing shifts here? There is a knowledge that puffs up. What kind of knowledge is that? It's that I can know for myself, that I'm the one doing the knowing, that I'm the one doing the studying, I'm the one standing above. And then there's this 
love that's counterposed to that. And if anyone loves God, knowledge is involved. But it's God who's doing the knowing. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him, or it can be translated known under him. Thank you, Jesus. In Colossians 2, just down from where he said, let no one cheat you through empty philosophy or vain deceit, he says again, let no one cheat you. Being vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. Or one translation says, having lost their connection to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Amen. There is a knowledge that cheats us by deceit. It replaces and supplants the knowledge that God would have, would have us to have. It's a counterfeit. It's a substitute. It's sure easier to get at, isn't it? It's just more natural. You know, I'm not that kind of guy. I, I'm, I'm more of a, of a rational kind of guy. Uh, and how many times have we heard that? As best as I could tell, we're all rational kind of guys. That's how we are. That's, that's where people immediately always go. I'm not saying there aren't some that are more given to this type of thing than the other thing, but ultimately, this is the enemy of all of us. Our own thinking, our own confidence in our own assessments and judgments and thinking. And yet he says that the problem is that when, you're, when you get puffed up in your mind, you've lost connection. You don't need God anymore. You're not connected to the head. And then he starts talking about the joints and the ligaments that hold the body together. And if we put that together with Ephesians 4, he says the body is built up by what every joint and ligament supplies. So it's not, some people would like to say, well, don't worry about me. I, my connection to the head is great. In fact, I don't need anybody else. It's just me and Jesus and we're so connected and uh, he's the one that's shown me all this stuff and well, it's easy to put God's name on it when it's just you and him and you don't have any reference points. But Paul says the body is built up by what every joint supplies. We each have a measure of faith. We have gifts only in measure and the fullness of the mind of Christ. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. The fullness of the knowledge of God is only gonna to come to us if we're in Christ, if we're situated in the context that he's called for. Thank you, Jesus. He says the same thing really in Galatians 4. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, he clarifies what he means by that. How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly principles to which you desire to again to be brought into bondage? We've just been talking about the book of Galatians, haven't we? And what the problem was there? The problem was that they said, give us a system. They were being bewitched by the notion that we can just come up with a set of rules and a system and stuff that we can do and, and a kind of a process that we can go through and rules that we're gonna keep and we'll do that instead of relationship. Instead of being obedient to the relationship, it got replaced, didn't it? That's what was happening and that's what he's warning them about. 
And he's saying here, these are weak and beggarly principles. Deductions that we're making about the world. And he says, how is it that you're desiring to be brought back into bondage to these when God just delivered you out of that dominion and out of that kingdom and placed you in another one? Amen. What are you suggesting, Brother Dan? Are you suggesting, it sounds like you're saying that we should exalt our personal experience above the Word of God. Have you ever heard that argument? Maybe made that argument? <laughs> you're exalting your, your personal subjective experience above what the Word of God says. Well, if what, we're, what I've said here contradicts what the Word of God says, then I would appreciate knowing how it does so. We're not saying that experience is separated from the Word of God. Quite the opposite. We're saying that the Word of God comes to us not just as an abstraction in our minds, but that it is something that speaks to our entire being and that its entrance point to us as the Word of God says is our heart. It is with the heart, Romans 10, 9, is with the heart that we believe and with the mouth we confess unto salvation, right? Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Thank you, Jesus. How are we doing? Are you still with me? What are you going to say? Nobody's going to say no when I ask that. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Let me share one other thing with you about this emotions versus reasoning capacity. And then I want to share a couple more scriptures and I'll, I'll be finished unless the Lord does something else. You know, it was thought for a long time, a lot of people still sort of assume it, that our reasoning powers are what govern human activity. And it was thought that the cortex in your brain, which is known kind of as the command center, it's the center of executive functions where decisions are made, that this was what animated people. This is what made us do what we do. This is obviously was what controlled the body and, and all our decisions. That's true on one level. But in recent decades, once again, good old science actually unearthed some unnerving things. And they started discovering that there's another system called the limbic system that is throughout the brain that is the emotional core of what people are. And what they discovered was that the, the limbic system, which, which is governed by our feelings, determines what information ever makes it to the cortex. Okay, so there's all kinds of information that's going on all the time that we could, and we're always, our brain has incredible capacity to filter through and select what's relevant, what's salient, what we should be thinking about. You can't think about everything at the same time. You're really delusional if you think you can. We, 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 we focus, we have a limited amount of focused attention. They say that 95% of decisions people make are actually unconscious 
they're subconscious. Only a tiny bit of what we're doing is actually even at the forefront of our minds at any given time anyway. But we can only focus on, on one thing that's important. Most of you are focused on what I'm saying and what we're talking about, but you know the feeling. I'm sure it probably hadn't happened to any of you in, in these last two days, but uh, it can happen to, to other people that you can be in a talk like this and at some point you'll realize, what, what did he just say? <laughs> I fell off the side about five minutes ago and now he's talking about something else and I don't know how we got from there to here because I was thinking about lunch. Okay, so we can be sitting here, you can be staring at the speaker, you can, you can have eyes to see and ears to hear, but your heart can be elsewhere and you miss it. You miss what's right in front of your face. You can miss the most important thing that's going on because you're more interested in something else. We start daydreaming or whatever, but that's, that's just us. Now what determines where that focus is? What determines what we're even making decisions about? It's the limbic system. It's the filter that determines what is salient. It says, uh, that's irrelevant. Don't even send that to headquarters. That doesn't matter to me. I don't feel anything about it. Amen. That's, that's how the scientists say that our brains work. I don't trust the scientists very much on all things, but they may be onto something here. Amen. That's how they say that it works. It determines what is salient to us. So how we feel about it in the heart determines our actions. It can make people do unreasonable things. You know, you see a building that's ablaze and it's on fire and you say, oh boy, tell you what, I think I left my wallet in there and there's like 20 bucks in it. What a shame. You don't run screaming into the house to get your 20 bucks. If your child was in there sleeping in the crib, you'd go. Amen? Why? Because of what you feel about it. Because of how important it is to you. Because it matters to you. You say, no, don't run into there. You're going to die too. It's not, it doesn't make sense. I don't care. I've got to do something. Amen? So what animates us at the core, which is the root for the word heart, if you're a Spanish speaker, corazón. Core, it's also the English root of our word courage. Where Jesus says, take courage. It's translated, take heart. You got to feel this. If you don't feel, you're not going to act. Let me read you something from, just thought of this. I wrote this down a few years ago because it really struck me. It was from a commentary that I read. on James, and I, I think, I put it in my Bible, see if I found it, here it is. Nothing more injures the soul than wasted impressions. Feelings exhaust themselves and evaporate if not embodied in practice. As we will not act unless we feel, so if we will not act on our feelings, we shall soon cease to feel. Amen. Amen. We don't have to obey our feelings. 
but they are what put things, the decisions in front of us. Amen. It's a guide. It's our heart that is drawn towards God. He's placed eternity in the hearts of men. There's something in our heart that longs for God and, our, and we say, oh, I don't know, I need to think about it. There's not real good results in the scriptures from those who said they were going to think about it instead of constrain him and say, oh, my heart is burning within me. Come a little closer. Thank you, Jesus. Romans 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Not a foregone conclusion. If the Spirit of God lives in you, there is a new reigning power. There is a new controlling force that has taken possession of our hearts and our minds. So the big dilemma is not, does the heart control the mind? Should I follow my heart, you know, and leave my mind behind? Or should I follow my mind and try to control my heart? People act as if there's this line between heart and head, and if we could just let the head control, we'd, we'd be in good shape. But the line really should run this way. There are God-anointed and God-controlled thoughts, and there are sensual, earthly, demonic thoughts and rationalizations and reasoning. There are God-anointed and spirit-inspired emotions, and there are fleshly-inspired emotions. So the line really runs more like this, doesn't it? And what we need is to yield our hearts and our minds to the Spirit. So we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart first, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strengths. In other words, we're not going to save ourselves. Salvation is not going to come between our two ears. Salvation comes from outside of ourselves. We're going to have to reach out for another controlling force that can carry us in a way that we did not want to go in the flesh. That's what happened with Peter, right? Peter had good intentions. In his mind, he was going to do the right thing, right? He even argued with the Lord when Jesus said, no, you're going to betray me. Peter said, you, you don't understand how I'm thinking. That's not how I'm thinking. The way I'm thinking about it is that I'm going to do this. I'm going to be faithful. Amen. But when certain emotions got in play and there was not a stronger force at work in his life, he, he did things he didn't want to do. He did the very thing he said he wasn't going to do. He, he betrayed the Lord with his words. Right? But then afterwards, the Lord tells him, Another is going to gird you up. Amen. You're not going to have to go under your own power anymore. Another is going to gird you up and pick you up and carry you in a way that you would not have gone. 
And then your life is going to give glory to God through that. Amen. Of course, we know that was a promise of the, the coming Holy Spirit. It was going to empower him. Brother Evan, I think, spoke about it before. Listen to this. Ephesians 4. This is right after the whole passage about the body and God composing the body so that we can be built up and not be children and, and all of that. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why is this ignorance in them? They haven't studied long enough, have they? No, he says, why? Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Who, being past feeling, the word is apathy in the Greek, no longer capable of feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned in Christ. This is not how you received Christ. This is not how you should walk in Him. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Amen. Offer yourself as living sacrifices to God. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you see that? He says it's an, it's an understanding problem. There's futility of the mind. They don't understand. They don't get it. They don't see it. There's a knowledge problem, and the knowledge problem has come from a heart problem. Their hearts are blind. I just have two more passages. Thank you, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. Earlier, he's really given us a message about this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. On the one hand, it doesn't make sense. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And on the other hand, it's not, oh no, let me explain the calculation. You don't get the formula. No, on the other hand is, to us that are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or, or the philosopher? of this age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brothers, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and he has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us Wisdom from God. Wisdom was embodied in the man Christ Jesus. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption that it is written, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or with wisdom de declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That your faith should not be your trust, your confidence, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. That your faith, your confidence would not rest in the wisdom. It would rest in the power. That we would gauge everything in our lives, not according to, ah, does that make sense? Well, I don't know. Let's think about it. That we would say, where's the power? Where's the fruit? Where's the love? Where am I connected with God? Is my heart burning within me? Or is this just interesting stuff? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It goes on really talking about the same thing. But let me read one more passage to you. This is, you're probably already thinking about this one. Acts 17, where Paul goes to Athens. And he goes in there and he encounters philosophers and they want to know what he has to say. So they took him, brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? They're inquisitive. Sure, let's talk about it. <laughs> For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's quite a commentary, isn't it? <laughs> That's not what we're doing here this week. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. But these guys, I mean, they're all about knowledge. Well, let's, well, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. You can be very religious and not know God. 
You're very religious, for as I was passing through and considering all the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should think about the Lord. Trying to make sure you're listening so that they should seek after the Lord in hope that they might feel after him and find him, not think after him, not try to, well, I don't know, it's interesting. Feel after him. God has designed, he's telling these Greeks, he's saying, I know you guys are thinking that you're here to figure it out. God has already figured it out. And that's why I'm here talking to you, he's telling him. That's why I'm here talking to you. That's why you're alive at this very moment, hearing these very words on this earth at this time. God already had a plan. He already designed the whole thing. And that's why we're here. And now our responsibility is to not be so blind that we can see and not perceive and hear and not understand, but to grope and to feel after him. Amen. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not by observation, but to feel after him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Amen. It's in him. He's the source of life. In him we live and we move. The word there can be translated, we are moved in him. It's the same word that's used in John 5 where it said about the man beside the pool that the angel would come and stir the waters of the pool. He would move the waters of the pool and whoever got in when the waters were stirred would be healed. It's the same word that's being used right here. In him we are stirred. There is movement, emotion. It is emotive. It's dealing with what motivates us, with what motivates us to act. It's what we feel, it's what creates motion. He's saying, we've got to seek after him, we've got to grope, we've got to feel after him if we're going to find him. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Amen. What does that mean? We're his children. We're his children. What's he pointing to? Unless you come as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom. There is no other way to do this. How does a little child approach his father? I don't know. Still trying to figure dad out. That's not how he comes. There is a trust. There is a faith. There is a relationship that guides everything that he does. Thank you, Jesus. And it's characterized by humility. It's coming under. It's saying, God, you know all things. Amen. I'm not here to know you in that sense. I'm here to be known. You know everything about me. 
Your word searches the thoughts, the intents, the motives of the heart. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If we're going to come to him, we're going to have to come with our hearts. God wants us to understand. He wants the truth to come together. It's going to come. It's going to come as we yield our hearts to him. There's a vulnerability in it. And that's why we hide in our minds, isn't it? We hide in our minds because it's the safe space instead of following the heart and what God is doing. Thank you, Jesus. When we feel our hearts and we say, ooh, oh, I gotta think about this. I gotta get my mind around this. Thank you, Jesus. We better watch it. We're in danger of quenching the spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We have to be willing to take those vulnerable steps. James says that the wisdom from above is willing to yield. We've got to learn to yield to God, to be possessed, to be controlled, to say, God, I can't control my feelings, I can't control my mind, but you can. I'm here to learn to yield.